50 million Americans are hungry. 40 million families are facing eviction. Millions have lost health care benefits. And more than a million workers, health care workers, have been laid off, have lost their jobs in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited again to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of capitalism. We'll talk about how the economy can be reconstituted on a new basis so that the needs of people and the planet come before profit. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com, and Wolf is spelled W-O-L-F-F. Professor Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, It's such a stark set of numbers, 50 million hungry, uh, 40 million families facing eviction, millions losing their health care. And you would think, well, that should be a cause of immense alarm the media, which does so much to shape consciousness, could be having blaring headlines, you know, big banner headlines saying the American working class and poor are in crisis. The system is in crisis. But it's really, it feels just sort of like business as usual. And even the way the economic situation is you know, affecting different parts of the population is used with such euphemistic language or iconography that instead of it revealing the magnitude of the crisis, it it basically functions as a disguise. I was looking at this Wall Street Journal article. Uh, it's it says uh, we're facing we we are experiencing a K-shaped recovery. K-shaped recovery. Now most people will think like, what the heck does that mean? Uh, there, another way you might say is that the rich are getting very, very rich. They're that part of the K that goes up at the uh, on the second half of the K, and the rest of the population is going down. But it's not equivalent. It's not like half the populations are 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 winners going up, and the other half are losers. It's not like that at all. Yes, it should be a K in which the line going up, the upper part of the K. Um, should be very thin, should reflect uh, the 5%, maybe 10% of the people who are doing better, 
and the lower, the part that heads down from the middle of the vertical in a K should be a huge, fat, black, downward to reflect the fact that the overwhelming majority of the people are caught in the twin crises of the year 2020 as it comes to a close. On the one hand, the crash of the economic system, which, by the way, happened starts in February, then happening together with the arrival of the pandemic, which starts in March. Uh, and either one of those alone would have been a major challenge for our system. Um, but to have them together is the biggest challenge of all. If you look at the 20th century, we had a great, terrible viral pandemic in 1918, and we had a great crash of capitalism in 1929. But it was very important that there were 11 years separating so that the country could focus trying to deal with the virus when it hit, and then having recovered from that, then cope with the depression of the 1930s. Both of those were critical moments, but literally it boggles the mind to imagine having the two together, and here we are, that's what's happening. And one result is that a capitalism in crisis cannot handle a virus, and that's what we're learning. It can't handle it in terms of saving lives, it can't handle it in terms of avoiding cases, and it can't handle it in terms of keeping people's incomes and jobs and family situations uh, from total deterioration. And it's an awful statement. Capitalism isn't good at this. That's what we're learning. But the variety of capitalism we have here in the United States uh, is the worst. Uh, we are equaled only by places like Brazil or India, uh, who are large countries with terrible failures in this area, but we're number one. We have more deaths. We have more cases. It is an amazing thing that one of the richest countries in the world that boasts of its medical health care system is so failure-ridden when it comes to this. Richard, the, I'm, I'm, it's an interesting point that you're making about this kind of capitalism. I mean, we we live in a global world economy, and it is a global capitalist economy. And every country that wants to engage in trade uh, or economic activity has to relate to this global economy. And the global economy has rules, and the rules you know, weren't simply spontaneously developed. They were largely constructed at the at the close of World War II, where the United States was the last of the existing major industrial capitalist countries that was still standing. Uh, its cities were not in ruins. Its, its factories were not destroyed by the war. That wasn't true in Europe, and it wasn't true in Japan. The other major centers of capitalism were destroyed. So the U.S. sort of took command. It became the anchor for the reconstitution of the global system with itself as the lead, with itself as, in many ways, uh, the hegemon. Uh, the dollar became the world currency, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there were many other manifestations of this new 
world order, this new world order, which wasn't completely new, but it was partly new. It had new institutions. But what you're suggesting and what we're, we've talked about in the past, which I think is so important, is that while there is a global capitalist world economy and capitalism is a global system, there are different variations and varieties of how capitalism is uh, constituted or how it is organized and how it performs in different parts of the world. So there's the underlying dynamics and laws of capitalism and commodity production, but there is great variety at the same time, uh, such that you can look at how Europe is handling COVID or how Europe is handling the issue of jobs and wages, or China, another variation, uh, really starkly different. So the name of our show is The Socialist Program. We're for socialism, but it's important as we as we think about socialism, organize it, try to promote it, try to popularize it, to also recognize that there is these, these variations in capitalism. Absolutely. And, and let's, let's spend a moment looking at them. One of the differences, um, quite an important one, but not as important as too many folks give it, but an important one, is whether you have a capitalism that is overwhelmingly private in the sense that the goods and services are produced in enterprises with an employer who is a private citizen, not part of the government, not a government official, uh, and so that you can say it's a private capitalism, private enterprise, sometimes called free enterprise. And the, the number one example in the world is the United States. Britain is a little bit like us. There are a few other countries, but nobody goes as far as the United States and Britain. That's why it's sometimes called Anglo-American capitalism in giving the priority and giving the dominant place to the private capitalist uh, sector. In many other countries, both in Europe, but particularly in Asia, uh, the government is given a much more predominant role. That is, there are lots of government enterprises where the government is the employer. The employee-employer relationship is the same in the government and in the private. In both cases, a small number of people, private citizens in one case, you know, owner of an enterprise or board of directors or major shareholders. In the government, it's a government official, a commissioner, a government board or something like that. But the employee-employer relationship is the same. The difference when you have a powerful government uh, is that you have created an agency that is able and indeed expected by the population to mobilize all of the resources of that society to cope with crises. By the way, you can see it in the People's Republic of China, which is a powerful government that everybody looks to, even though it presides over an economy that is largely government and also largely privately owned and operated. They have a mixture in China of private enterprises and government enterprises. Or you can go across the, the, the ocean a little ways, you come to Taiwan, not governed by a communist party, the way People's Republic of China is, but similar in the sense that the government is powerful and 
owns and operates enterprises, as well as having a private sector, or Australia, or South Korea. These are societies in which the government is given a kind of standing, a kind of respect, a kind of political position that enabled them, and in every one of the countries I mentioned, People's Republic of China, Taiwan, South Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, New Zealand, countries with very different politics, but sharing a space for the government to play an important role. And that enabled those societies, every one that I mentioned, to be stunningly successful in mobilizing both public and private resources to combat this disease. Here in the United States, by comparison, and you see it also in Brazil, and you see it also in India and other countries, uh, where the government is unable or unwilling to take that kind of role, where the people don't trust their government, where the people have no confidence in their government, where the people think the government is crooked or suspect uh, in some way more than the private sector, you immobilize the government, and the government could not uh, mobilize public and private resources. It was blocked by the laws. It was blocked by the power of the private sector. It was blocked by the tradition and the ideology that demonizes the government. That's what we have here in the United States, uh, and you have it to a, a considerable extent in England. And so the resources weren't mobilized. You weren't prepared for the virus, as you should have been, and you are unable to contain it, as you should have been. You had all the resources, but you didn't have the institutional framework, particularly an agent who could bring it all together, which basically has to be the government. Who else is going to do it? And the irony of American history is that in the last two times that we dealt with these kinds of crises the Great Spanish Flu, so-called in 1918, and even more, the Great Depression of the 1930s, we too called the government in, in a massive way to cope with this catastrophe. We didn't do a great job with the Spanish Flu, but we did a pretty credible job in the 1930s. We called it a brand new deal because it was a remarkable intervention by the government demanded by the mass of people who then were strong enough to overrule the conventional U.S. ideology, which hamstrings the government and blocks them from taking the, the steps that we need. I want to keep on the topic of the, the ideological factor here, the anti-government ideological narrative that has such strong roots in the country. And they didn't just start yesterday. They've gone on for some time. But uh, especially when when the government does something progressive, like the 1964 Civil Rights Act that outlawed legal apartheid uh, imposed by capitalist or business interests where service could be denied uh, either in private sectors or by local municipalities, uh, the government was the target for ending apartheid in America by the forces of racism. Uh, it's happened at other times, you know, at other times during American history, and it, and it, it set up a clash. Uh, you've talked before about the, 
the strength of the working class movement in the 1930s, such that the unemployment insurance, social security, the right to unionize, all of these important uh, developments, legislative institutional developments that took place in the mid-1930s were a consequence of a very vibrant, robust workers' movement and socialist movement. Uh, but even then, in 1934, prior to the adoption of, of unemployment insurance, the head of the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, based it, basing itself on, on the craft unions, not the industrial unions that were represented by the CIO and John Lewis and uh, large numbers of socialist and communist organizers, the AFL president said he opposed, as the head of the labor movement, opposed unemployment insurance because it was a government dole beneath the dignity of the American worker. So, I mean, back in the 1930s, there was that same kind of clash. Now, I listened to a story a couple of days ago, and we played part of uh, an audio clip or two clips, actually, yesterday in our show. And I want to play them again. I want to play both of them. Uh, it's a story from NPR, and it has to do with the question of hunger. And the underlying assumptions here uh, regarding what the government's role could be or should be, uh, you can see that even those who are advocating for a different policy by the government, they don't, they don't have the, uh, the assumption that this should be an absolute requirement that the government do something in a way, there's a kind of pleading uh, from these important progressive voices about what the government should do. Let's listen to the first clip. I'll play it real briefly. It's less than a minute. And then I'll get your comment. And then I want to play the second clip uh, because, again, it has to do with the government's easily available remedy to the issue of hunger. Let's listen. A line of cars snakes around the block and then past the next block, farther than the eye can see. In each car, a person or a whole family is waiting patiently, inching forward minute after minute towards a full stomach. These lines outside food pantries are a common sight around the country right now. 50 million people in the U.S. could experience food insecurity by the end of this year. And with several federal aid programs set to run out in just days, many pantries fear they will run out of food, too. There's just something about that tone, Richard. Um, again, it's not, it's not the voice of anger and ridicule against the system. It's just sort of... Yeah, uh, we might be about to run out of food. Yeah, it is. It is a testimony, and I, and in in a way, and I don't mean this ironically. I have to take my hat off in acknowledging the power of an ideology that has been drummed into the heads of the American people uh, for over seventy years. Uh, it was there before, but. It's the last 70 years that have been a relentless drumbeat of telling people that the government is the problem, the government is a burden, the government is corrupt, and the private sector, private enterprise, private capitalist employers, well, they're the solution to the problem. They are the better alternative. They are trustworthy. They are... It is amazing how successful that ideological training program endlessly repeated so it becomes natural. So people who are hungry, 
people who are unemployed, people who are thrown out of their homes, they are trained to think, what did the government do to bring this catastrophe onto me? Now, that takes extraordinary training because if you're unemployed, it's because an employer, and in our country, that's overwhelmingly a private employer, fired you. The logical thing for you to be is upset with the person or the entity that fired you, and that's the private capitalist system. If you were bounced out of your house, if you were evicted, it was because a private landlord threw you out of your home. And it's because you either lost your home or you lost your job that you lack the income and the place in which to buy and prepare food enough for your family. So to manage to be resigned to that as if somehow it's an act of nature or to blame the government leaves the one entity unblamed, namely the private capitalist and the capitalist system, leaves them unblamed even though they are the proximate cause of what is going on. They are the ones who either evicted you or fired you or refused to hire you It's an ex- or didn't pay the taxes to allow the government to come in and help you if you can't get a job or if you can't stay in your home. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement of a, a capitalist protective ideology. And let me conclude by making clear, this was the response of the capitalist class of America to what happened in the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, capitalism collapsed, and everybody knew it. One out of four people out of work, government unable to provide services because it had no taxes. It was the collapse of the system. And because people knew it, they were willing to hear and follow socialists, communists, trade unionists, saying, look, the system really has to change. And that forced the government, and the government took those steps. Beyond doing the things you mentioned, let's remember who paid for it. Taxes on corporations and the rich. Borrowings from corporations and the rich with the taxes and the borrowings used to pay for Social Security, unemployment compensation, uh, federal jobs, all the rest of it. That was so odious to the capitalists that they decided with a real vengeance to undo, after 1945, all that had been achieved by the New Deal in the 1930s and even during the war, um, 1940 to 45. And we, we have lived through, those of us that are older, what it meant in the last 60, 70 years to undo everything. And that wasn't just a question of getting rid of the real power of the minimum wage or destroying unions or a completely abolishing federal employment uh, as a measure to deal with unemployment. The biggest effect was this ideological one, this intensive training of people when they suffer to either accept it 
or blame the government. It's like a wonderful gift to capitalism, allows the private employer to kick you, to abuse you, to fire you, to cut your income, to lower your benefits, to eat up your pension, and you either resign yourself, as in your clip, or you get angry at the government, leaving the capitalist free to, of course, do it to you again because you don't react against the cause and the source of your suffering. You allow them to persuade you to get angry at something else. Richard, the um, easily achievable measures that could end hunger in America also include allocating adequate money for it. Um, you have the the one the one part of the the narrative that you're discussing, which is exempted from the anti-government bias, it has to do with arms spending. Um, and here you have the new budget. Uh, again, approved almost with un- unanimity by the Democrats and Republicans to fork over seven hundred and forty billion. That's the official number. It's when you take all of the other military spending pieces and other parts of the budget, the number really is about a trillion a year, about a trillion for weapons and missiles and bombs and soldiers and marines and aircraft carriers and you name it. And that that's sacrosanct. People, you know, we we open sporting events with you know singing the national anthem, and people learn to chant USA, USA, all of it as a way to also sort of sign off on the one part of the government spending which is considered to be totally wonderful and accepted by all different sectors of the political establishment. I want to go back and play the other audio clip though. And then ask you in our last minute or two or three to sort of talk about this phenomena because the the SNAP program, that's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, uh, Trump is proposing while he increased with the support of the Democrats, the military budget to $740 billion, a cut in SNAP uh, program by $180 Eighty billion dollars—that's thirty percent—through uh, radically restructuring how benefits are delivered and taking SNAP away from millions of adults who are not working more than twenty hours a week, and reducing benefits for other households. There's also, according to this proposal, a big cut in the budget for uh, money that's for schools, school lunches, where a big part of the working class youth, young people, students uh, get their food at school through these sort of subsidized programs. Those two are on the chopping block. Let's. I want to go back and hear the other audio clip. It's very short from NPR, again, having to do with the issue of the 50 million uh, Americans who are hungry. Now, again, the government doesn't set up the programs outside of SNAP to give people food. It gives money to private uh, NGOs or nonprofits who then have to buy the food, distribute the food, you know, warehouse the food, all of that kind of stuff. That too is kind of privatized. They're they're contractors in a way with the government, but their monies are being reduced. Uh, again, I want to hear the clip and then get you to talk again the the contradistinction between military spending and spending on things that humans actually need. Let's listen. Feeding America 
were the largest response to hunger in the charitable sector. But for every one meal our network provides, SNAP provides nine. So there really is nothing that can compare to the scope of assistance to people in this country than the SNAP program. So really increasing those benefits just a little bit during this time when grocery prices are spiking would go a long way to helping people. Again, Richard, notice she's actually, and I, I, my hat's off to her and Feeding America and the other groups that are doing it because they're filling the void. But, you know, asking for just a little bit more when you have 50 million hungry, that's not, uh, there needs to be a sort of a militant presentation. Anyway, uh, as we start to wind down here, I want to I help the audience sort of put all of this into perspective, if you could. Let me try to do it this way. Um, the military budget that you're quite right was passed a few days ago, 750 billion more or less, or a trillion if you add all the, the other stuff. Uh, it's a testimony to the to the priorities. I mean, uh, let me give you the amount of money in the recent budget for the Centers for Disease Control. Ready? 11 billion. Let me do that again. Defense, 750 billion. Defense against disease. 9 to 11 billion. That's crazy. Let me explain why that's crazy. This disease that we're living through, corona, has already killed more people than any war we've fought in, including World War II now. So what's the greater danger, the war or the disease? You spend 750 billion or more on the war, and you have an apparatus to find and monitor and deal with and mobilize resources against the disease with a budget of $11 billion. It is craziness. Self-defeating, by the way, not smart, even for those who love this system. You are producing critics and enemies of capitalism these days on a scale that will come back to haunt you. Let me put it in another uh, context, if I can. It would take exactly 10 minutes to design a program to feed everybody. The United States has the land, it has the technology, it has the machinery, it has the fertilizer, it has what it needs to solve the problem. There is no excuse, especially for a country going into the Christmas holiday with a Christian commitment to charity and sharing and all the other good things we associate, at least try to, with the ethics of religious belief, how in the world do you justify? And here's a last way to see it. If you took away the $180 billion that Mr. Trump wants to cut the food service program, SNAP, And instead of cutting it, you taxed Jeffrey Bezos, one man, $180 billion of his wealth. That would leave him, according to the latest numbers, with an excess of between 20 and $25 billion, making him still one of the 50 richest men in the United States of the world. And then you'd have all the money so that nobody would be denied a meal. Millions of people would eat properly in this country, and you would have left a man still 
one of the richest people on earth, having removed the other 180 billion from him, leaving him still the richest. But how you can justify not taxing the rich, not taxing corporations in the face of this, that takes the the capitalist system into the realm of levels of exploitation of the people that you associate in history with the excesses of pharaohs, of emperors, of czars, that you recount to your children as what they did just before they fell. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books. He joins us every Wednesday here on The Socialist Program. His latest book is The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.